0: Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We ask, please, this morning that you would cause our hearts to be good soil so that there would be a harvest as the result of hearing your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, do turn back to Psalm 73. Uh, if you've closed your Bibles. And uh, let me start by uh, in this way. Have you ever felt the following? Uh, you see a colleague advancing at work, and you know that it's because they're prepared to, to bend the rules. To be flexible with the truth, to cut corners. They don't mind trampling on others to get the job done. They are popular, and perhaps that has something to do with the promotion. They are a good fit with the culture of the firm. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt this? You have to say to your friends or your teammates during the week, I can't make it on Sunday. Knowing that they're going to be off doing something that really you wish you were doing as well. Or what about this? You're out and about and you see... Another person, perhaps in the street. You see the clothes that they're wearing. You see perhaps the car that they get into. You perhaps see the house that they're getting into or coming out of. Perhaps you see their family. You see their children. And just for a moment, or perhaps longer, You go home and you feel unhappy with what you've got. The clothes that you have, the car that you have, the house that you have, the children that you have. That's just really a bit of a joke. (laughs) And for a time, you are thinking that they have... A better life. They have a better life in some way. Now, in all honesty, you don't even have to go out to run into this problem because it comes into our homes. It comes into our homes through the television and the internet, through the adverts we look at, through the glossy magazines that we, that we browse, or the weekend supplements if you have those. You see, it is the work of the ad people to try to sell you a better life, to sell you the dream that there is a better life to be had. And it is quite possible that we are here this morning tempted to believe that lie, that there is a better life to be had. Psalm 73 is here to tell us that some of us here this morning already have that better life that we wish for, and that some of us don't have that better life. It's written by Asaph, and Asaph was appointed by King David to be in charge of music, serving at the temple in Jerusalem, writing songs for God's people to sing. Now, you'll see on my sheet that this week I've gone pointless, Which brings to mind the story of the young Puritan preacher who was visiting a church. And he finished his sermon in the morning something like this. Forty-secondly, he then returned in the evening somewhat more humble. And he announced at the start of his sermon this morning, I had 42 points. Tonight will be pointless. Not quite this morning. The structure that I've put down on the sheet breaks the psalm into three, and basically it's guided by the word that repeats at those points. Uh, Surely, verse 1, and then again... Uh, at verse 13, and then again at verse 18. It's a little clue to uh, the structure of the psalm. Asaph, the writer, was a believer who struggled with what he saw around him in the world, and thinking that others had a better life And he's written this looking back on that experience, that section of his life. And he's written about it to help other believers, to warn other believers, to encourage other believers with the same struggle. So, in my notes, I've got for this first section, Asaph's problem. Asaph's problem versus 1 to 12. Now, remember, at the start, he is looking back to the struggle that he had. And here's how he starts. Verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So, he starts by speaking about God's goodness to a people. He says Israel, but then he qualifies it in the next half and says to those who are pure in heart, by that he means those who are walking faithfully with their God. But then he turns to himself, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. By wicked he means those who have rejected God. Now, can you Can you see all that he's saying in these opening verses? He's starting by saying God's goodness is not to be doubted. But then he's talking about a time, verse 2, when he, in his own words, almost nearly. Do you see that? He almost nearly gave up. Why? Because, verse 3 for I envied the arrogant. He envied others. In other words, he is a real mix, or in this section of his life, he was a real mix of someone who struggled with temptation and doubt and sin. I envied the wicked. I just want to pause and say this is refreshingly honest, I think you ever feel like you're the worst Christian in the world? Well, here's someone this morning to encourage us in our struggles. What did he see in the lives of these people? Well, verse 3, let's read, "'For I envied the arrogant "'when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. "'They have no struggles. "'Their bodies are healthy and strong. "'They are free from the burdens common to man. "'They are not plagued by human ills. "'Therefore, pride is their necklace. "'They clothe themselves with violence. "'From their callous hearts comes iniquity. "'The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. "'They scoff and speak with malice. "'In their arrogance they threaten oppression.' Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongue takes possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Asaph was attracted in some way by their health and happiness, by their popularity Their influence, their wealth and power. These are the things that seem to make them popular. And their arrogance, their arrogance seems to cause others to look up to them, to have a following. And yet they ignore God without any fear. Today we could say he's talking about rulers. Who are ruling badly? He's talking about the millionaires who live as they wish, the celebrities whose lifestyle is splashed in front of us. But he's also talking about he's also talking about the cool kids, the cool kids at work, or the cool kids at school. Whatever age you are, there are just cool kids around, and it's easy to not feel that we. Uh, to not feel that we're one of them, to, that we don't fit in in the office, in the classroom, with our family and friends, with our neighbors. It's easy to see others ignoring God, living for themselves, and they're doing just fine. Asaph is unsettled by this. The well-being of the wicked. He sums it up in verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. And just be good for us this morning just to pause and think in what ways do we sometimes, if we're believers, if we're Christians, do we envy non-Christians round about us thinking that particular non-Christians have a life that is better, better than we do. I had hoped to get a, a set of old kitchen scales, balance scales. Does anybody have these balance scales? If you do, I need them for tonight. If you, balance scales. Because he's weighing up what he sees And it's all tipping in one direction. What do we find especially attractive? Comfort. The comfort. The comfort that goes with with maybe not being a Christian. It's so hassle free. For for one, I get a lion on a Sunday morning. I don't know why I'm facing this way at the moment, but I'm facing this way. If, if you feel you like a lion, I'll face this way as well. The comfort. A lion on a Sunday morning, though, that would be a thing. And the freedom, the freedom from dilemmas of how to use my time and spend my money. And then... They just, people just have a self confidence, a swagger, an arrogance, an authority. They just live life as they would like. They just speak as they wish. And then they're so popular and influential, and I just don't fit in. They have so much the wealth that they amass, the possessions that they own this is London life. This is all around us. And at some point, it is going to be, if it is not right now, unsettling for believers. That is the problem. And when we struggle, the temptation is to say, is God really good? Is God really good? Why does he allow this, this sort of lifestyle to prosper? And to say deep down, I want that. I want some of that. You see, when we're tempted to think that it would be better to be a non-Christian, then praying the words of this psalm will help us to be honest with God. To be honest with God about our struggles, about our temptations, and even about our sin. If we have envied others, that is Asaph, a believer with a problem. That's Asaph's problem. Going to see next Asaph's action. In verses 13 to 17, his action, just look down to verse 17, his action is that he entered the sanctuary. Do you see that in verse 17? He entered the sanctuary of God. In other words, he went to the temple. Now, just before we look at these other verses, there's three lines in 13 to 17, three lines to continue to help us to feel his fight. He feels a fight with emptiness, with suffering, and with belief. How does it all fit together? Verse 13, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. There's an emptiness. Verse 14, all day long I have been been plagued. I have been punished every morning. I'm suffering. Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. I think he's saying, if I had spoken like they do in verse 11, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? He can't, though, quite bring himself to say that. His current experience of following God is empty, hard, and discouraging. Perhaps in his head, he has Psalm 1, which we read earlier, stuck in his head. Just keep a finger in Psalm 73 and just quickly flick back to Psalm 1 and just page 543 Maybe this is, is what is causing the dilemma. Someone says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. Whatever, who does prospers? Whatever the blessed man does prospers. Not so the wicked. Come back to Psalm 73, but with that thought in mind, Asaph, his experience is the complete opposite of what we just read. The wicked prospering, and I, I don't feel blessed. I ain't blessed. And in verse 16, we see that he is grappling with this. All his reflections trouble him. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. It really was hitting him hard. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. This seems to be the turning point, the action that he took, drawing near to God, going to the temple. It seems to be the turning point. I wonder why. What is it about going to the sanctuary, going to the temple that helped Asaph? Well, I think that word sanctuary would point him back to God's original sanctuary, the Garden of Eden. When in that place, God met with his people in unspoilt fellowship. That's what we read about in Genesis 1 uh, 2 and 3. Uh, 1 and 2. Unspoilt fellowship between God and man in that place where man enjoyed God's presence but then where it was spoilt by sin and man had to leave God's presence. You see, sin is man's greatest problem, a rejection of God. That is actually man's greatest problem our greatest problem. But the temple, the sanctuary, reminds Asaph of God's goodness in providing a place where sinners could draw near to God, the holy God, where sinners could come into his presence because of the sacrifices that were made there. So that is what Asaph does with his sin. He draws near to God. That's his action. We're on to his answer. These, clo- these last verses, 18 to 28, Asaph's answer. Well, there's three parts here. First of all, he sees the future of the wicked. Verse 18... Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Something has become clear, and he's now looking forward. And in the future, Asaph sees the end of of the wicked, and he envies them no more because he sees the future that is theirs because of their choices, because of their rejection of God, and he envies them no more. But then secondly, he sees his own sin. Verses 21 and 22, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was brute, a brute beast before you. He sees how in his heart he was bitter and was doubting God's goodness to him. So he sees the future for others. He sees his own sin But then thirdly, he also sees God's goodness. And if we have a set of scales, then these are the things that go on the other side. These are the things that go on the other side. Verse 23, he realizes that he has peace with God. Verse 23, yet I am always with you. He realizes that. That despite his sin, he knows God with him. He realizes that he has security, that his hand is gripped by God. Verse 23, second half, you hold me by my right hand. Security. He realizes. That even if the future is unknown, God is guiding him. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. And then verse, uh, the next part, he realizes that afterwards he has a great future. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The scales on this side have just dropped to the ground because he believes that he now has God. God. He has God and all these blessings that go with being one of God's own. What he has in this life and the life to come is all by God's goodness. And he's realizing how precious that is. In the final two verses, Asaph gives us a summary. He says, "'Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds.'" Asaph's resolve has been renewed to stick with God. And he's calling us to a decision this morning. I said at the start, some of us already have the better life that he has just described. And some of us don't. Asaph went to the temple. Christians today don't need to go to the temple to draw near to God. People today don't need to go to a temple to draw near to God. They do need to go to a place. But that place is a person, and that person is God's son, Jesus. That is how we draw near to God. That is how we know God today. Listen to the words of of Jesus. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus says some hard things, but he says them in the spirit of the captain on the boat that is sinking, and he says, Get a lifeboat. He says to the crowd, along with his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? And then again he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says hard things, but because he wants people to be safe. If you are already following Jesus this morning, then you have this life that Asaph was rejoicing in. Jesus is the life. And this morning, this is a call to cherish Jesus more and more each day. And as we do that, we will be declaring to those around us his goodness the goodness of God. Let's pray. Father, please help us to know that you are good. Please help us to cherish Jesus more and more. Amen.